Hey guys, I wanted to drop in a quick uh, message before we kick off today's episode. I wanted to let you know that recently I discovered there's been some, it's been some hardware, I believe some hardware related problems with the recording of these podcasts on my end, resulting in some weird digital kind of interference sort of things. Uh, had a lot of problems, unfortunately, with my audio in this interview with Matt Little. So I had to go back because I love you so much and re basically re-record a lot of my sections throughout this episode today. So that's why the huge delay in getting this episode released to you all. I apologize for that. I think I've got the hardware thing figured out. Uh, so going forward, we should have fewer of these issues. So I'll turn the podcast over to you now. Take care. Enjoy. This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 453. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today we have a special guest interview, and I will bring on our special guest here momentarily, uh, but I want to let you all know that there's some exciting things coming with the podcast here in the relatively new future. We're going to be making a few minor tweaks. Some of those are still yet to be determined, so I'm not at liberty to say exactly what they are, but... Just stay tuned. It's going to be an exciting time. All right. So uh, always trying to make the podcast a little bit better. We want to emphasize the fact that we are still a podcast first and a video show second. That is not changing anytime soon. Anyway, today's episode, we're going to be talking about performance when it counts with a very special guest. And I'm going to go ahead and bring him on now. And his name is Matthew Little of Graybeard Actual. There he is. Hey, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Thanks for coming on and uh, checking out my uh, my humble contributions to Riley's show. <laughs> um, I've been excited about this, too. Um, I first met Riley at the primary and secondary summit in Utah just recently, and we really hit it off. We had some great conversations about the nature of performance, especially as it applies to shooting both for self-defense and competition and just shooting skill in general. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation tonight. I think it's going to be good. Yeah, man. And really appreciate you making time to do it because I know that you're on the road. You're on the road a lot, traveling, working, doing all kinds of stuff. A lot of training, doing things for uh, STI, uh, featuring staccato pistols from STI. So speaking of which, guys, uh, uh, I don't really have any other official sponsors of the podcast today. But I do want you to go check out Matt Little's website, graybeardactual.com. And also staccato2011. Dot com, I think is did I get that right? You did, yeah. That's yeah. It. And and people might have a hard time spelling that. So S T A C C A T O two zero one one dot com. Uh, that's that's like your day job now, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of a mix. I mean, I've still got I've got my training business that I started when I retired, and then Staccato initially was sponsoring me for my training, and then they wound up bringing me on to do training for them for law enforcement agencies. So I do training and demos of the firearms. I actually just got back today from Wisconsin. I was working with a SWAT team for two days up there for them. And it's it's a great kind of meld between working for them and my own business. They both complement each other really well. And I'm enjoying it. And they're fantastic pistols. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's really kind of a no-brainer for me. 
Yeah. I know I've been really impressed with them. The times I have put my hand on those guns and put some ammo through them. Really cool stuff. Uh, so Matt, you, uh, you have a unique background, um, you know, cause we've had other people on the show that were very, you know, they, they, they were military veterans. They'd done a lot of really amazing things in the military. Uh, we've had guys, we've had cops, you know, we've, we've had, uh, well, the one, one that comes to mind cause he's quite memorable in his experience is Tim Grammons. I, I'm guessing you probably know Tim. I do. Yeah. Um, so we've had, you know, guys on the law enforcement side, we've had competitive shooters on the show, but it's rare that we get somebody that's done all three of those things and all three quite extensively because you've retired from us army special forces, yep. you retired from being a SWAT cop and you're a competitive shooter. So, so tell us a little bit about who is Greybeard actual. So, and there's actually a war story behind the name, which if we have time, I'll get into later. It's, <laughs> it's a pretty funny story. But so basically I joined the army at a young age and I wound up going special forces in 20th special forces group, which is a reserve component unit. It's a national guard unit. And I was also a Chicago cop for a full career. So I wound up, I finished up my career with Chicago PD as the training coordinator for the SWAT team, which is a full-time SWAT team. And I wrapped up with Alpha Company, 2nd Battalion of the 20th, a few years before that. And it was, it was a really good experience because it gave me both perspectives at a level that I was fortunate enough to be exposed to. Um, and I worked with some really amazing individuals on both sides of the house. So there were a lot of lessons learned from both sides that I could carry over to the other and they could kind of meld back and forth. And then based on the urging of some people I knew, um, Frank Proctor, who was in 20th Group, he was one of our instructors at the shoot house down in Alabama. And he and I had some long conversations about how he got to be so good with a pistol. And eventually he managed to convince me, as stubborn as I am, that I should compete in USPSA. And I kind of hit it and got the bug for it and just ran with it. Um, I'm currently, I'm a master class shooter in two divisions in USPSA and in two divisions in IDPA. Um, I shoot locals, I shoot majors. Um, I'd like, you know, I'm still, I'm on that train too, to see how far I can go in that direction too, and see how far I can take that. But I think the combination of the three gives me what I have to offer as a trainer. Like that's what kind of gives me my perspective that I think is a little bit unique I know a lot of people that have done one or two of those to the same level, but I don't really know anybody else that's done all three to the same level. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I think it's a relatively unique perspective. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I was going back to the primary and secondary uh, training summit, uh, you know, just getting, getting to meet you and, and get to know you a little bit and, and learning about, about that. I'm like, wow, like you're a really unique individual in that, in, in, in your background, in that level of experience. Um, you know, some guys might've done, you know, four years active duty or something and then got out and, and maybe they then went on to a law enforcement career. Uh, and then maybe somewhere in the mix there, maybe they did some competitive shooting. Um, but it is rare that you find somebody that, that has done a lot. I mean, I, if I'm not mistaken, you, you've, you, you were, you were, uh, you did some deployments as part of ODA yeah. units. Yeah, no, I did. Right. 
Um, that's like that serious stuff there, bro. You know, so, so you did that, you, you know, SWAT team, uh, all that. And, you know, and, and a master class shooter, like I know a lot of cops that aren't even close to being master class shooters. <laughs> you probably do too. Um, cause it, it takes a lot of work to even get to that level. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a serious undertaking. And then each, and you know, this yourself, cause you're, you're quite the shooter, even if you are, um, ranked a little lower than your skill level would actually have you at. Um, we can explain what sandbaggers are to the audience later. <laughs> but uh, no, it's every percentage of improvement beyond a certain level takes exponentially more effort than the percentages before. Mm-hmm. So there's always that law of diminishing returns for performance, right? I mean, you get to a certain point and it takes you as much effort to go 2% further as it took you to go 10% prior. And it just keeps on getting harder and harder the higher you climb. Yeah, And it's, I, I've always, everything I ever did, I wanted to be good at, right? And I've always kind of been a geek for performance. You know, how do you, how do you eke out that, that performance level from what you're doing? How do you train for it? How do you get your mind right for it? You know, what habits do you develop that give you kind of the maximum amount of performance on demand, that you can get. And I think the on-demand thing is important too. And it kind of comes back to the topic we're going to be talking about tonight is performing well on a good day when you're warmed up and you're feeling well, and you know, everything's all nice and comfortable and in a comfortable surrounding. And, you know, there's nothing really on the line. That's one thing, but cold performance on demand with no warning is something else completely. And that's something you have to kind of get your head right for before it happens. When it happens, it's too late to wrap your head around it. It's not going to work out well for you. You're not going to rise to that event without having prepared for it ahead of time. I don't believe. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Uh, I mean, I haven't been through things like you've been through, but I've, in my limited past law enforcement work and some of the situations I found myself in, uh, I absolutely 100%, like that, that mirrors my, my level of experience, uh, my own experience that, uh, uh, when stuff starts going sideways, it, it happens really fast. So fast, your brain doesn't really catch up to it. And I think that's where y- your, your skills have to already be at a place where things can happen. I mean, things have to, there are many things that have to happen automatically. Yes. Right. Because you can't be standing there trying to think like, what do I do? You can't, you don't have time to make that decision. You have to just act. There was a term that was getting passed around on the, uh, the pistol forum on the internet for a while, uh, mm-hmm. automaticity, mm-hmm. which if I have the definition right, it basically correlates to subconscious competence. Right. Being able to do something at the subconscious level at a high level of competence. And that is is really important, I think, not just for the reason you just gave, which is completely true. I mean, when when things go down, like you're just kind of observing what you're doing and you're doing what you've been trained to do. And that's how it's going to happen. But I think it's also important because, and I'm talking about like just the actual conflict right there, right? You know, Mm -hmm. the actual moment, the moment you pull the trigger. But there's a bigger tactical picture too. And you see it a lot in military operations where, I mean, you, you may have moments where you're pulling the trigger, but there's also moments where you have to solve 
bigger problems and be aware of larger things going on while you're still doing those skills. Hmm. So if you don't have them at that subconscious level, you can't open up your awareness and your conscious mind to handle the things they need to handle. Whereas if your shooting or your, your CQB tactics or whatever are at that subconscious competence level of skill, now my conscious brain can think about the bigger tactical picture, where I need to go and what I need to, to accomplish apart from just the actual physical act of conflict itself, but the bigger picture in terms of what I need to do. You know, and it could be as simple as for a concealed carry person, it could be as simple as having the the wherewithal consciously to realize whether there's a solid brick wall behind the threat or a crowd of kids. Mm. Whereas someone who doesn't have that that subconscious competence built up, they're not gonna be able to think about that. All they can do is tunnel vision on the firearm and the threat because they're not at that level of skill where they can have their conscious mind solve the bigger problems. Am I making sense? Is that oh yeah? Did I articulate that right? Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I I am. I'm picking up what you're uh, laying down there, brother. Because I, I mean, I, it's inevitable we're going to talk about it today uh, about competitive shooting, for instance. I mean, that's the most, particularly the most recent experience that I've had where this this is true. All the things you're talking about are true. Like you're on a you're on a competitive shooting stage, a USPSA stage, and you're looking at everything and how it's laid out. And here's the thing, even though like you can stand there and look at where all the targets are and where the barrels are and the walls and other various obstacles, uh, a shooting area that you have to stay within all this stuff. And like, you can look at it and on the surface, you're like, Oh, this is pretty simple. But then you get going and you get in there in the middle of it all. And you're like, wait a minute. It's not that simple. Uh, I'm lost. I don't know where I'm going. I forgot where that one target was. I thought it was here, but it's not. Now, where is that thing again? Oh, shoot, my gun's dry. Now what? <laughs> you, you know, know like, to circle back around to the previous point, because I think this is, a, this is a valid thing that carries over from competition to the real world, right? When you just first start competing, if you come off the rails, it's a train wreck. Like there's no recovery. Like the moment, the moment it comes off the rails, things just start compounding, right? You have that, uh, that cascade of errors, (laughs) but you look at the top shooters and they still make mistakes. But when they make the mistake, they've got that ability. Like I was talking about a minute ago, their conscious mind can handle that and fix the stage plan or whatever, modify it to make it work. While the subconscious mind goes back to the process of shooting. And that's one of the things I think you get from competition that carries over as an attribute that'll help you in the real world. Um, and like, I'm a big fan of, have you ever read like Dao of Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee, his stuff? I have not actually. It's, it's well worth reading, but mm, he talks about skills, skills and attributes, right? Mm-hmm. So a skill is something like your trigger press at speed, you know, the ability to split fast and keep the gun running where you want it to, so you don't get that second shot low left, right? Something like that, right? That's a skill. An attribute is something like opening up your awareness while your subconscious is task saturated with the process it has to work on, Mm. letting your conscious mind do something else. Like that's an attribute you build. So you need to build not just skills, but attributes as well to be truly competent because the actual, the physical skill alone is only part of the picture. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, you, you are spe- you're speaking to my heart because it, it's been an honestly recent history, and I recent. I mean, like the last I don't know year uh, of w- where my mind has started to just be opened to some of these attributes. See, I think for a long time, my, my mind, my mindset was one of, well, if I just keep getting really, really, really good at these skills, then it's, you know, like it's going to magic, like it's, it's just all going to work. Right. Um, But then you get to a point where finally you're like, well, I consistently do a sub sub second draw, right? I consistently can do a reload, you know, at whatever time frame. I can, you know, shoot this target, that target, this thing, you know, what in whatever standard. And then you go to a say a match, it should be a simple match, and you're like, how come I don't perform better than I than I am? Because I have this high level of skill. And that goes back to the attributes, right? And it's yes. And that I think is what separates like basically your your M and GM shooters from like your A class and high B class shooters. Because if you look at the actual physical components in isolation, a good B class shooter's got to draw as fast as a GM. A good A class shooter's got to reload as fast as a GM. The transitions and splits. There's going to be a bit of a difference, especially at distance, right? But at the the typical range for USPSA match, 7 to 10 yards, 7 to 15 yards, right? It's not going to be that different. You'll start seeing the differences with the GMs out past 15 where they can still go really fast. But what makes them different is the attributes. And going back to the whole, like, process of, like, figuring out performance on demand. So skill degrades under stress. Skill also degrades in combination. Have you ever noticed that to get your best PR on a draw, it's going to be on a drill that is just a draw in one or two shots, right? That's going to be your fastest draw. If you look at the physics of it, you wouldn't think that would be the case because it shouldn't make any difference. It's still the same physical motion, whether you're doing an El Prez or shooting a pair from the holster, right? But what happens is the more skills you string together, In combination, the more of an aggregate you have, the more each individual skill degrades. The harder it is to approach your personal best on each individual skill when you start putting them together like that. And the more you string together, the harder it is to maintain each one near your top skill level, right? So that's an attribute you have to develop as well. That's something you have to work on, not just the individual skills. It doesn't take like... I've done this a bunch of times. I know Scott Jedlinski, our mutual friends, done this a bunch of times. Where I'll get a guy, I'll get his draw from down from one two five to 0.95 in a short practice session, right? In isolation, that doesn't mean that one practice session is going to give you a 0.95 draw across the board in all kinds of different situations and combinations and under stress, right? You've learned the mechanics of it, but applying it takes more than just that simple mechanical skill. Yeah. Yeah, uh, all of that's true. <laughs> Preach it, brother. <laughs> uh, it's it's so true. I mean, because like, like, okay, to build off of what you just said there, uh, you know, an, a single one shot draw in isolation 
is fine, but then maybe you incorporate some movement into that draw. Well, now you've introduced another variable. Now I'm moving and now uh, even little things you don't even think about, like now my shirt or whatever other cover garment over my gun that I'm carrying concealed is is moving with me as I'm moving. It's it's where it's it's in a different place than what I'm used to. So that, you know, adds another variable to that whole process of getting your hand to your gun and getting that gun out and still getting it done in a sub second or whatever. So, uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and I think that, um, I think that's one of the failings we have, whether we're talking military law enforcement, civilian carry holders, right? What is the most common way for, us to train in that segment, non, non-competition guys, like self-defense, tactical shooters, right? Is these relatively short drills on the flat range, they may incorporate movement, but it's almost like movement isn't even really part of the drill. If you notice what I mean, like people run around and they'll do the drill. Mm-hmm. But we're doing ourselves a disservice because you can get very good at that sort of stand and deliver shooting and not have it carry over that well once you start making it more complex. Yeah. Um, I discovered that the hard way when I started competing. <laughs> um, I was very good at stand and deliver stuff because of all the shooting I'd done in SF and the fact that I was into it and I trained on my own and I practiced and I dry fired and everything else. So I made master in production really fast and I could not shoot a match well to save my life. Like I, it took me a while to kind of reverse engineer what I was doing and make it to where I could do more than just shoot classifiers where I could actually do well in a match setting. Um, Because it's harder. I mean, it is, it's harder. I'm not saying that classifiers aren't hard. We, We know they're difficult, but the act of putting all these different things together throughout with movement and a wide variety of target engagements and changing gears from here to here and, and all of this and holding it all together and keeping it all on track is a lot more difficult than, say, um, an El Prez, which is a, a relatively complex stand and deliver stage, really, when you get right down yeah. to it. It's got the turn. It's got the reload. It's got, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it's a whole different animal when you start negotiating around obstacles and trying to shave off thousands of a second with each step you take. It, it makes it much more challenging than simply standing there and shooting at a, a static target. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's apparent to me that you were already a high, highly skilled shooter and fighter uh, from your experience in the army and with Chicago PD and, and SWAT team stuff. Uh, I mean, you, you kind of, you shared a little bit of that uh, background with uh, Frank Proctor uh, getting you going in competitive shooting and kind of noting that, Hey, you're, you're pretty good. So what was that transition like for you? I mean, like, cause this is what I see. I see oh. a lot of times cops and others. I even remember shooting a match once with, uh, um, I don't remember what unit he was with, but, uh, a guy that was a, he was an army veteran. I didn't really get to know him all that well but I know that he looked like he looked like he knew his, his stuff and he looked like he, he at the beginning of the match, it looked like he knew what he was doing. You, you know what I mean? 
But then I remember seeing him towards the end of the match, and he was sort of appearing to be a little bit deflated. And I've seen that a number of times with different people. Uh, I've seen that with myself. So what was that like for you? Tell us what that transition was like when you started shooting competitively more. Oh, and this was, yeah, this this was humbling. This was humbling. Um, So I had known for a while I was going to do it. You know, my friends had convinced me I needed to do it. I was going to do it. And I actually waited a couple of years before I started because I I know my personality and I'm an all in kind of guy. So I had to kind of make sure that I had the resources available, you know, the time, you know, where I was at in my life at that point to really dive into it seriously before I started. So of course, me being me, I decided I'm going to start in the fall in Chicago instead of like during the actual outdoor shooting season, right? Like a smart person would do, (laughs) but I didn't want to wait till the spring. I wanted to go and get started then. So I looked around on the internet looking for a match I could do. And there was this old website called Will Shoot in Wisconsin, Illinois. It was like, it was run by, um, do you know Les Kismartoni? He's a top 20 GM in production. Now he shoots open minor from AIWB concealed and still just throat stomps everybody. He's a really good shooter. Hmm. So he was the guy running that website, right? So I called up Les, who I knew of. I had friends that were mutual friends with him. And I asked about the match. They have a match there every other Wednesday, right? At this indoor range, but it's an indoor range with shoot house walls. So you can shoot out to 180 like a regular match. Mm. So it's a little different than the normal indoor match. Yeah. What I didn't realize when I called him was that not only was he a top 20 GM nationally, but out of about 30 people at this indoor match on a Wednesday night, they averaged about seven GMs and about just as many masterclass shooters. Wow. So I walked into that never having shot a USPSA match before. So they beat me up and they took my lunch money. (laughs) And as I laid there crying in the fetal position, sucking my thumb, wondering what just happened and trying to figure out what train just hit me. um, Yeah, I know it was humbling. It really was. It was very humbling. I knew how good like national champions were because I'd watched stuff on the internet, you know, and I had all the old Lenny McGill videos from back in the day with, you know, Oh yeah. Barnhart and uh, Latham and Enos and all those guys burning it down. (laughs) So I knew how good, somebody at the top of the game was what I didn't realize was how good these 30 guys at a local match were going to (laughs) be. And it was a great experience. It was kind of like, so I started out as a martial artist when I was a kid, like before the army, before anything else. And as a teenager, I would seek out the adults who were really good fighters to roll with because I wanted to get better and you're not going to get better against people that you're better than you're only going to get better against people that are better than you. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the same mindset I had. And that's what I think enabled me to just accept the uh, ego crush that it was and be like, well, Hey, if I want to be as good as these guys, I'm just going to have to deal with it and suck up my pride and start figuring out how to make things better and how to shoot better so I can catch up to them. But I have seen a lot of guys come from professional backgrounds, guys who carry a gun professionally, who go to a match and some 16-year-old chick takes their lunch money, and then they decide they're never going back because it's a game and they would have won the real thing. And I'm not saying they wouldn't because there are differences between a gunfight and a USPSA match. This Mm -hmm. is true. But 
All other things being equal, the faster and more accurately you can shoot and the more precisely you can move with a firearm and enter and exit positions, the better a gunfighter you're going to be. So even if you're a better gunfighter already than the person who beat you at the match, if you're as good as they are at shooting the match, you'll be a better gunfighter than you are now. And that's how people need to look at it instead of getting wrapped up in this ego of, you know, I, I carry a gun every day and I have a badge on my hip and that should make me invulnerable. And bullets don't care about what badge you wear or what tab you have in the army or what color your beret is. Bullets don't care about any of that. They care about how good you are. And, it's a, and sometimes it's just random luck, but that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I, it's really sad and, and, and unfortunate. Those that do show up at their first match get a major ego check, and then they're just like, "Yeah, I'm not cut out for this," and hang up their hat and go home because I really feel like they're missing out on a big opportunity to level up their already existing skill sets and attributes. Uh, and and going back to the attribute thing too, like there are benefits beyond just pulling the trigger faster and more accurately, right? Mm-hmm. A USPSA stage is not CQB. It's not. CQB is drastically different in the way you move. But I discovered that the better I got at shooting matches, the better I got at CQB. Not because they were the same, but because the attributes I developed at shooting stages better made me better in CQB. Um, a lot of it has to do, I think I have this theory that, you know, it's basically like processor speed on a computer, right? Like how much Ram you have on your computer. Most guys that are doing CQB for a living, the speed they're going in the shoot house is as fast as they ever go because that's their job. That's the speed they're training for. And I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice through that because there's no buffer built in. Remember, skill degrades under stress. So building that buffer in and learning to go faster than you would actually go in application, I believe has tangible benefits, especially mentally, because it allows you to kind of open up your awareness and be calmer about what's going on because you're not tapping out your processor speed. You're not maxing out your abilities. And I'm I'm a huge believer in that because I remember when I made a concerted effort to get better at shooting matches, it wasn't long after that, that all of a sudden CQB looked different to me. All of a sudden, I got much better at it than I'd ever been before, just because my way of looking at the world had changed. I'd become attuned to thousandths of a second and trying to maximum maximize my efficiency in my movement. So then those same attributes got applied to CQB style movement, and everything felt so much easier than it was before. And all of a sudden, my awareness opened up and I could be aware of everything going on. Whereas before I might've been focused more on the particular problem I was having. Now I'm still focused on the problem, but I have enough bandwidth built up where I can see and hear everything else that's going on. What my teammates are doing. If, if somebody else is out of position, I'm more aware of that because I'm more comfortable at that pace because now that pace is so much below my maximum. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it makes tons of sense. This is the very thing that I have finally started to understand for myself through experience. Um, I think there were some things I was doing already intuitively that I was not aware of, like 
you know, talking about this processor speed, having a buffer, uh, being able to process things faster, opening up my awareness. I think some of that was happening automatically, but I was not really ready or I was not really paying attention to that. And, and now I'm starting to pay attention to that more and I'm seeing more. So, and I, I kind of, I liken it to the example I like to use is, is when we talk about like cameras, like video cameras, right? Like your standard video camera is like 30 frames per second, right? Something that's a little bit more cin- cinematic is like 24 seconds per second, 24 frames per second. Um, but when we want to start slowing things down, you know, on, on, on a, in a video, we need more frames per second. If we want to see more, we need more frames per second. And so it's kind of the example I use and, and, and I've used it in some of the classes I've taught where it's like, we, we need to, you know, do X, Y, Z thing. And we need to get this, we need to get this kind of base foundation level of skill because that's going to allow us to then start ramping up our frame rate that we can see things. And the more we can see, the more detail we can see, then it, it, it I mean, for instance, is it the, the example when I use this the most is when we're talking about like tracking your sites, site tracking, right? Um, most shooters shoot their, their gun. They see their site on target. They press trigger and the sites disappear. And then if their recoil management's even moderately decent, then they see the sites come back down. They're like, oh, there's my sights again. Here's the target again. Okay, bang, let's go again. And then the sites disappear and then they come back. Um, then there'll be times where they think their sights are there. They fire a shot. Sights disappear. Sights come back. And then they look at the target and go, hmm, that's not where I was aiming because they didn't actually see the moment their front sight did dip low and left or whatever, you know, before it jumped. And once we start increasing frame rates, then we can see things better and we can start tracking our sights and our gun and we'll see for ourselves. We'll self-diagnose ourselves. You're like, oh, I saw that my wrist broke in my grip right before that went bang. And that actually then is like that instant feedback to yourself of, I know what I need to do now to correct that because I saw it happen. Uh, and you're not sit, sit, you're not standing there wondering what just happened. No, I surely didn't anticipate that shot or break my wrists or whatever. You know what I mean? So yeah, that frame rate speed uh, is it a, matters. It matters. It's a real thing. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. It's cool, man. When you start seeing all that, it changes your world. There's a couple things I tell guys in the classes I teach, and I stole them both from different instructors. But uh, one is that it's not a sight picture. It's a sight movie. You Mm -hmm. should see everything the gun does. And the other one is that I want them to be tuned into the gun enough where they can watch the brass tumble out of the ejection port with each Mm -hmm. shot. They should actually see like the casing flip out, how it tumbles out of the ejection port. And if they don't have that level of awareness of the gun, they're not tuned into the gun enough yet. Like that's what you need to cultivate is that, that ability to kind of be aware of every input it's giving you both physically and visually. Mm-hmm. So a little, the little uh, block of instruction I took from you at the primary and secondary training summit, that was a really awesome block, first of all. And you had us go through that drill 
And we, and you even talked about that. You used that as an example of seeing the brass being ejected out of the gun. Uh, that opened my eyes even further. Like I was like, Whoa, because admittedly, I don't think I had ever at least consciously noticed brass ejecting out of my gun. Cause I, I, I did, I, you know, whether it was cause I didn't have this, the ability to see that or pay attention to that, or if I didn't care to see it because not really relevant to what I'm doing. Cause I mean, I was definitely to a point I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm seeing that dot, I'm tracking that dot. I'm not having an issue with that, but that exercise of just trying to see more and more and more and more was like really eye opening to me. It's remarkable how much you actually can see when you start training your brain to be aware at that level, to be able to see those things. And and this is not who I stole it from. I stole that from Frank Proctor, the brass thing. Cool. But the best example I can think of, of that capability, that amount of awareness is um, Jared from tier one concealed. The one where he, he shoots a target and the brass ejects and he shoots the brass out of the air. Mm. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Yes. yes. Yeah. I have seen that video. It's insane. But that's a perfect example of that. Like he has enough awareness of what's going on and he's slowed down the world enough with his perception that when he shoots the target and the brass comes out, he can transition to the brass and shoot it out of the air, which is pretty damn impressive. Oh, it's way impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matter of fact, I need, I keep telling myself I need to try that. I keep forgetting. I got to try that. (laughs) <laughs> see if I can do it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try it too. Because <laughs> it's I, I like a good challenge, and it sounds like a a really great challenge. So, you talked about how competitive shooting started helping make CQB seem easier. That your awareness was opened up. Um, that things that you had already done many, many, many times before now just. I mean, w- would you describe it as sort of like your world slowing down or how would you describe that? I, I don't want to say slowing down because right. I don't think that's accurate. Uh, yeah. We hear people all the time when they get done with a really good stage say that it felt slow. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's right because I've had the same experience myself. And I think what they mean to say is that it was timeless. It's not so much that it's slow. Mm. It's that there's no real sensation of time passing. You're just observing. You're you're so in the moment that you're observing everything mm-hmm. as it happens, with no concern about what just happened or what's about to happen afterwards. Um, I think that's probably, I believe that'd be the most accurate way to describe that mental state, right? Yeah. And I think that is the state that all good performance comes from. You know, people talk about like the flow in the zone, or uh, martial artists with like a Zen background talk about you know, mushin, like no mind, right? And I think that that's what all those different terms are describing, that like state of timelessness. And I think that if we think about fast and slow under psychological pressure, it never gives us the results we want. You know, I mean, you hear guys talk about how often has everybody heard, oh, slow down and get your hits. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? You slow down and do everything wrong exactly like you did before, except slower. Because mm-hmm. you were thinking about going slower instead of thinking about doing things correctly. Right? Yep. Um, or I've got to go faster. So, you know, you go out there and you try to burn it. I'm going to burn it down. And sure enough, you make a lot of noise in a very short amount of time, but you don't necessarily make the holes you thought you were going to make in the targets. 
right? So it's kind of the same the same thing. I think speed should be considered solely a byproduct of kind of the technique you're using, right? What sight picture refinement I'm doing, what trigger press refinement I'm doing. The speed is just a byproduct of that. Like it's just the amount of care you need to take determines how fast you can go. And that's your current level of skill. You can't go faster in the moment. You can develop that speed moving forward. And yeah, actually we should talk about that too for training. There are times in training where you should go faster than you can control because that's the only way you get faster, but that's a separate issue. I'm talking about the application, not the development, right? Mm-hmm. To apply skill, you can't force skill that you don't have. You just have to let the process dictate what the speed is because otherwise it's not going to work out well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, I'm sure you have firsthand experience too, where, where I have approached stages or drills or things uh, with, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do this faster, you know, or, you know, I'm going to gas it up and burn it down. Exactly. And it usually results in a disaster, (laughs) you know, because the training wheels fall off uh, and you're not ready for the training wheels to fall off. So uh, yeah, the, and really kind of what you're touching on there is, is the whole kind of, you know, process versus results, um, you know, mindset because, if we try to achieve a predetermined result, in other words, speed or a certain speed or time, uh, the conscious mind, it, 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 it's sort of like, you know, sugar or candy or sweets or something that, you know, or a drug where it's like, Ooh, I like that. I like speed, you know, let's go fast. And sort of everything else falls by the wayside. And the focus of like the conscious mind is like, let's do this thing fast. Well, and think about too, like how often, because it's, you push and practice to get faster, to get to a new level of speed. And that push is fun. That push can be addictive, right? Yep. And then you do occasionally hook it up. So you kind of get like, well, I can do it. No, not reliably, (laughs) not under stress. You can't, that's just not how it works. I'm also thinking of our buddy Scott Jitlinski's, you know, way of talking about efficiency, right? Uh, that efficiency is a product of of good technique, right? Um, and that that speed then comes from the efficiency, right? When we do the technique correctly, properly, uh, then efficiency comes, and then the speed comes as a result of that efficiency as well. How do we apply this to our concealed carry folks? You know, I mean, and you're living the civilian life now, right? You're carrying a gun concealed. I carry a gun concealed every day. Um, Our audience is made up of concealed carriers. I mean, how do you see this applies to their world? So I think it applies a lot of important ways, right? Because you you basically, you need to build in that buffer. You've got to build in that level of skill that is above and beyond what you're actually going to need under stress. Because performance degradation, like we said, is a very real thing. You're not going to be able to do it under stress the same way. You know what I mean? So you have to, like, we had a conversation in Utah about split speed. Remember this? And... For real application, 
with the exception of certain outlier circumstances, which would primarily be like one-on-one surprise gunfights at very close distance, right? With the exception of that, for the real world, especially for like law enforcement and military, I don't think you'd ever try to split faster than like 0.25 for real application, because that allows you the time, you know, human decision-making for a trained individual is about 0.2, right? So you need that built into the process so you can stop firing. You know, if you're splitting at 0.16 and it takes you 0.2 to make the decision, there's going to be another round leaving the gun after you've decided to stop shooting. And that's not a good thing legally by any means, right? But that doesn't mean that it's not valuable to split faster than that in training because you're building in that buffer. And if I can learn to see everything the sites do at 0.16, then I can definitely see everything the sites do at 0.25 and it's far more comfortable for me. It's easier for me than if 0.25 is as fast as I can go because then once again, I'm maxing out my ability all the time instead of having that kind of extra leeway built in, if that makes sense. It totally does. I remember that conversation, right? Because this is such a fascinating thing to me. I mean, so, okay, we've been talking about performance, right? Where, um, for instance, like with a USPSA stage, or maybe you're doing CQB training, like you're down at the shoot house and you're working through different scenarios or whatever it is. And you kind of have a sense in advance of what you're going to do, what you're getting ready to do, what you're prepared to do. But there may, and then there will be some surprises along the way, right? Something pops up. You're like, Oh, I didn't expect that. Or that didn't turn out the way I thought, but you have in some contexts enough of a buffer because you're already prepared enough in other areas that you're like, I've got this. But what I see when I, what I observe in like body cam footage from officer involved shootings, Matt is something happens and it happens so quickly, so suddenly that it's like, oh, it's go time. And the officer, you know, reacts appropriately to that stimulus. But there, I think that that in that instant, instantaneous moment, that processor and the, and the memory capacity, everything is just like, you know, everything to the max. And all of a sudden the gun comes out of the holster and it's up on target and it's just whack, 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 whack with very little control. And what that tells me, and then what we see too, is we observe, we see this and particularly the, the, the chest mount of body cameras is a great angle because we can see that gun just going every which way, like almost zero recoil control sometimes even. And it's kind of scary. And, and all I can think of in that moment, watching some of that is this, it seems to me this officers probably never fired their gun at that tempo before. Right. And, and, and why? And so now why are they doing that in that moment? Why are they shooting like that? I guess I would flip that around to you. Like, why do you think that happens sometimes? I actually read a really good study on this. I can't remember who did it. I wish I could. I'm sure it was some FBI study, but basically all the body cam footage of gunfights, everybody's splitting at about 0.22 to 0.25 which is as fast as they can pull the trigger because they haven't trained to pull it faster, mm-hmm. right? So they're going to default to just yanking on the trigger as fast as they can because it's a life or death situation. But the problem is most police quals, the part times are generous enough 
where their splits are like anywhere from like a half second split would be a fast string of fire on a police car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now they're splitting twice as fast as they ever do in training and they're not trained for it. They're not prepared for it. So yeah. it's, it goes back to that buffer effect and that processor speed, right? You've got to, you've got to push it faster. I'm a big fan of making things more difficult in training than the real event is going to be. And I got to clarify that a bit because there's a lot of people that say that. And what they actually mean is they're going to make it suck more in training than the real event. And those are two different things. And I'm not saying that the suck fest doesn't have value because it does, because it builds, it builds kind of character and mindset and fighting spirit. Right. And those are important attributes, but they're not skill. The suck fest doesn't build skill. That's not how you make skills better. So when I say make it more difficult in training, I mean, make the shots harder, make the time limits faster. You know, if I can shoot tight partial targets at 20 yards and split fast on them, then most of the things I would have to do as a civilian carry holder are going to be far easier than that. They're going to be slower and an easier target. So if you make it harder than the event, then the event is going to be easy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's really, that's, that's a big part of what I think proper training should be. You have to temper it based on the personality of the trainee, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a very stubborn person, and I can just stay in the suck fest for as long as I think I need to to get better. But some people will get disheartened by that. So, like, when you're teaching, you've got to make sure you don't, you don't beat them down too much. You know what I mean? You can't make it so hard that they don't have any hope because not everybody has the right character for just accepting that and driving through it. So you have to kind of temper that for that. But otherwise, I think it's really valuable. Yeah. I uh I was thinking of Tim Heron. He, he describes uh kind of like if you're if you're if walking is you trying to get better uh with a pistol or really any gun for that matter, like your one of your foot's your speed foot and the other foot is I think he says your vision foot. Because part of going fast or being able to perform under pressure at speed is that a lot of times it takes our brain. It's really our brain and our vision processing center. It it has to catch up to what is happening and what we are doing. But to learn that, to train that, requires the brain to be exposed to that so we can start picking up on patterns of what is happening. And then the brain starts catching up and understanding what it is seeing in front of our eyes. And so we we need to take those steps forward with our speed foot first and then give and then our figure it out. Yep. The brain the chance to figure out exactly to, to understand what's happening. Um, it, it doesn't work the other way very well at all. Uh, in fact, it, I don't think it works that way at all. I think you have to you have to push yourself to that threshold. You have to push yourself through that breaking. Oh, wait, I thought slow was smooth and smooth was fast. <laughs> well, uh, if Tim were listening, he'd say, "Shut up." <laughs> no, that that makes me just as crazy. I, know. As makes I hate I that. Know. Um, uh, that, that's actually thing, like, right. He, he has his shirt that says, uh, you know, slow is smooth. And then, shh, 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 yeah, talking. stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things I do when I teach shooting is I do this on at least one demo every class, right? I'll show them kind of my process for working on a skill in isolation. 
And the first rep will be like what I believe my cold on-demand performance is. Like the best I can do with 100% guarantees cold, right? Like your first stage in a match or like a gunfight because the gunfight's always cold on demand. Yeah. For civilians anyway. Mm-hmm. And then I'll start pushing either, you know, the speed or the difficulty or, you know, some aspect of it until I find a failure point. And I'll intentionally fail in front of the students when I do it. Like I'll push it until I fail. And then I look at them and I say, you know, here's the thing. When you do this in training, you want to find your failure point and you don't want to go past that yet because that's your failure point, but stay there for a bit. Do some reps right there and try to fix it. Don't go slower. Don't slow down and get your hits. Don't back off the volume at all. Find that point where it just starts to fail. You know, not a catastrophic failure, but just, you know, it just starts to fail and then stay there for the remainder of your time on the drill and try to figure it out. And then something else I think is really important, both for law enforcement, military, and for, you know, self-defense shooters is at least the last drill of the day, you can't end on that push. At least the last drill of the day, you've got to end with another cold on performance or on demand performance pace, because that kind of resets your brain so that when you leave, you're in that mode as opposed to pushing, right? Because you don't want to leave the range and have pushed for two hours and then get in a gunfight and just spray bullets because you're stuck on pushing for speed. You've Mm -hmm. got to bring it back in. You've got to dial it back down and finish at a point where you could do it consistently on demand and kind of rewire yourself for that. So you don't leave on the wrong mental state. Yeah, you're kind of touching on what Steve Anderson talks about with speed mode versus match mode, or Scott Jelinski talks about speed mode and real mode, right? Yep. Uh, and by the way, speed mode is a great thing to practice in dry fire as far as working on manipulations and that kind of stuff, like pushing yourself to and even beyond failure sometimes, just so you can see what you can do speed-wise with a gun in your hand. But but doing speed mode on the range in live fire is important as well. Like what we've been talking about with getting the brain sort of exposed to and inoculated, if you will, against uh, those things, against that level of speed. And then it starts, you know, it takes some time sometimes, but it starts picking up. I appreciated that as well about uh, your instruction in that block that I, that I took from you. Uh, as you, you talk about the very thing, you're like, now push it and push it to where things start breaking you know breaking down and stay with it and see if you can start figuring it out uh and and that was that was kind of eye-opening for me you know as far as because normally the tendency is well that's not going good i'm going to stop now let's reset as opposed to this isn't really going well uh i'm throwing bullets all over the place left right up down but let's see if maybe maybe you know maybe changing a little something in my grip, maybe increasing pressure a little bit, uh, whatever it is, let's see if I can get it back. And it, uh, it, it was really, it was a really cool drill. Uh, maybe not, uh, ammo friendly for the current times, but it was a great drill. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think my classes are ammo friendly for the current times. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try to get better about it. If things don't get better for people soon. Yeah. Cause it's, I know ammo is really tight for everybody. Right. But there's some of these drills just there's so much value. There's so much to be learned from them, you know, and it's, I think this goes back to another thing. I think people do themselves a disservice by 
tactical shooters. We'll use that as a phrase to encapsulate, you know, CCW, military, law enforcement, all of that, right? We get taught a way to do something and we become wedded to that technique and we're afraid to experiment. And like, do you watch UFC at all? Watch MMA fighters? Yeah, here and there. Okay. So like following every fight, yeah. but I do enjoy it when I can. Um, so we'll use this as an analogy, right? You know, your top fighters, none of their technique looks exactly the same, mm-hmm. but they all follow the same principles, right? And to come back to shooting, I mean, out of the top guys, does anybody, does any two top shooters have a grip that looks visually identical? Oh. Not really, right? I mean, think about everything from Bob Vogel with the extreme cant over to to Ben with the thumbs up. To, you know, everybody's a little bit different. Right. Mm-hmm. The principles behind the grips are the same, but everybody's hands are different. Everybody's body structure is different. Everybody's psychology is different. So you manifest the principles differently to make them ideal for you. And I think that we're afraid to experiment in our training. And part of it, I think, is that, you know, we feel like we learned a way to do it and we're imitating how that way looked without understanding what actually makes it work. And part of it, I think, is just that we're afraid to go down a dead end, right? You know, you don't want to waste training time wandering off down this dead end and not figuring it out. And I understand that, but I don't think proper experimentation will do that. I think proper experimentation will help you avoid those dead ends instead and give you the ability to kind of work your way around the stalling points and figure mm-hmm. out how to develop your training and your technique so you can maximize your rate of improvement. Yeah. I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring this back around to, you know, in fact, we had a comment here from, uh, from Lance. He says he just got his permit to carry concealed last month in North Dakota. He's excited to start learning more and getting more practice in. He says this, this conversation is almost completely over my head yet. I still enjoy listening to it. Uh, I think what I would try to say to, to Lance, someone like Lance is, you know, there, there's something that caused you to go get, a concealed carry permit. Uh, and for most people, because I interact with a lot of people, I, and I've certainly have taught classes and this is a common thing I hear is something in their world has happened or changed or prompted them to, to realize that they are their own first responder and they are now pursuing a permit and they're going to carry a gun. And there's a lot, I mean, there's, there's so much that that entails, uh, from mindset to, you know, your dress, how you're carrying the gun to actually being able to use the gun and use the gun under pressure. Um, and, and, and be, and being good and wise in your decision-making decision-making is such a, un, you know, underappreciated skill of its, of it, of its own. When we're talking about the and, use and the, of force sorry. somebody, you're you're fine. Go ahead. The ability to uh, to spot like pre attack cues, mm-hmm. the ability to just kind of make make tactical thinking part of your daily life. So not so that you're paranoid. I'm not saying you should be paranoid, but just the w- where you stand, where you sit, where you walk. You know, when you're in an urban environment, do you walk close around a corner where somebody could surprise you, or do you walk wide around a corner where you're kind of pieing it off as you go? You know, little things like that. When you stand in a public place, what is your back to? What are you looking at? Uh, you know, when you sit in a public location, how are you sitting? You know, there's the old cliche of the back to the door, but there's some truth to that sort of thing. 
if you set yourself up properly, you can avoid a lot of trouble before it starts. And one thing I think that is just about universal among all mentally balanced people that have experienced a lot of violence. Notice I had to clarify that, right? <laughs> but uh, anybody who's experienced a lot of violence, especially people who have had violence be part of their profession, if they have half a brain, they understand that it's a very serious thing and it's not to be taken lightly. And there's so much random chance that you don't want, you don't want to be in a fight. If you've been in enough fights, you don't want to be in a fight anymore unless you absolutely have to. And the ability to avoid it before it happens is crucial for everyone, especially for civilians. Cause it's just not, if you can avoid it, avoid it because it's just not worth the headache if you could have avoided it. And I'm not saying you always can either by any means, but yeah. I think, I think awareness is more important than pulling triggers for sure. Yeah, I agree on that for sure. Getting back to what has dominated a lot of our topic of discussion tonight, which has been more on the shooting side of things, you know, uh, more of the shooting performance and so forth. But we want the shooting aspect of the equation to be, I mean, I want that to be the easy part of dealing with a threat, whatever that threat may be. It should be the thing that I am least concerned about in the moment, right? But the problem is, is, is a lot of like, you know, I know people I train, people you train that there's a lot of people carrying guns professionally and unprofessionally, non-professionally, uh, that, uh, need, need to step up their game with that pistol in their hand. It's, it's hard. It takes work. It takes time and effort, but it can be done. It's, Pistol shooting is a very challenging thing. It's much more difficult than, than other firearms, for sure. And I think people underestimate how good good enough is. You know, And I'm not saying you don't need to be a masterclass shooter to be good enough to be able to handle yourself. I mean, most of the guys in SMUs are probably high C, low B class shooters. When you look at like USPSA standards, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably plenty good enough. Mm -hmm. The problem is that's a lot better than most people realize it is. Yes. <laughs> and it takes a lot more work than most people realize it takes. Like it takes work to get that good. You know, forget mm -hmm. GM and M. It takes work to get to B. It takes a lot of work. If you're a B-class shooter, you're no slouch. And I think a lot of people who carry a gun either for a living or to protect themselves have a, I don't want to say a false notion. I don't want to criticize people. That's not the point of what mm -hmm. I'm saying. I think they haven't been exposed to what good actually is, and they haven't been given the data to make an informed judgment about what they need to do a needs analysis for their skill. They don't, they don't have the data. Nobody's given them the data for them to understand how good they need to be. So it's not a dig on them, but if you're going to carry a gun every day, you should probably put enough work in it to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, and if it's your job, especially like guys on law enforcement or military teams where their jobs involve like hostage rescue or other high stakes things, there is no good enough. Like it's, yep. you can work the rest of your life and you should never be satisfied. Yep. I think. Yep. Well, yeah, 
I personally feel like nobody should be truly satisfied with where they currently are. Right. Cause you never know when that fight's coming. And like you yep. said, Murphy always gets a vote, right? Like things can happen. Things can break. Uh, luck may not swing your way. So I want, my- sure, yeah, I want to make sure I'm constantly advancing my own abilities and skills to be the best that I can be because I never know when that day is going to come that I need to use my gun or any other. And to get philosophical again, right? I mean, there, there really is a lot of value, I think, to the pursuit of excellence for its own sake. So if you're pursuing excellence in something that your life may depend on, and that's why you picked it, that's fine. But for a lot of people, I think you'll come to find that the actual pursuit of excellence itself becomes the point you know, kind of walking that journey is in and of itself a very rewarding thing and brings benefits. You know, there's a reason why people go to martial arts to build character, right? And shooting is a martial art, like that pursuit of excellence, that ability to take your ego out of the equation and really, really work on every little piece you can to get the last little percentage of performance you can find. That journey alone has huge dividends, I think, for your character and your development as a human being, regardless of self-defense. So if you're doing it with, you can do it with anything. You can do it with calligraphy or painting or soccer. But the fact that you're doing it with a skill that also could save your life or your loved one's lives makes it all the more valuable. And one of the reasons I think why martial endeavors have always been prized highly for their, their character development is because of the stakes, right? You can take another pursuit, another path, and use it to follow excellence and seek out excellence the same way, but the stakes aren't there. Whereas with something martial, the stakes are literally life and death. And that puts like a seriousness to it that helps you develop those attributes that can carry over to the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, you see that, I think, in how shooters approach practice or how they shoot. Like there, there was a time in my life when I would go to the range just to have fun, you know, just to blow some ammo and make some smoke and noise because it was fun and and it is fun. But now I, I never go to the range just, just to have fun. The fun is, the fun is in the excellence in finding or discovering the excellence. That's the fun. Um, Back to Steve Anderson. Remember, um, famous Steve Anderson quote when somebody told him dry fire was boring, and he responded, "Yeah, you know what's not boring? Winning. Winning's not boring." (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. So, if someone were to say, "Hey, Riley, let's go to the range and just you know do a bunch of mag dumps," I'd be like, "Yeah, you know, like." really what I might end up doing, if somebody was providing the ammo, I'd say, okay, let's do that. While I'm going to be doing those mag dumps, I'm going to be really watching and paying attention to my dot or my sights and trying to continually learn how to process those things better, faster, what kind of inputs I'm putting into the gun. But it's not, I'm not doing it just for the sake of burning the ammo. That's for sure. I'm a big believer that if you're serious, if you're training, I mean, there's a difference between training and having fun and plinking and training is fun, especially if you have the right attitude about it, right? Like you said, that pursuit of excellence is the part that's fun, but 
when you're training, every bullet should be a lesson learned. Like if you don't learn something from that bullet, you wasted that moment and it's not going to come back. You know, you wasted that round. It's, it's done. It's gone. Every time you fire the gun, you should be figuring something out, learning something, even if it's minuscule, you know, some little bit of a learning point from it. Uh, otherwise, it's not productive. Yeah. Agreed. Lance here, who's viewing on Facebook, has a question. His first question is actually, I, I'm pretty sure in jest, he says, where, where do we, where do we get t- cheap ammo for the range? <laughs> uh, but then he asks, are dry fire apps for target shooting at home worth the money? I, I would uh, switch that up a little bit and, and ask what you think, like what, what, what would be some advice or tips that you would have for particularly a, a newer concealed carrier? You know, that's the context for them. What, what dry fire tips would you have? First, they need to realize, because a lot of people misunderstand what dry fire is. I mean, not from the competitive world. You know, like people in general, they think of dry fire as just the trigger presses, right? Or maybe trigger presses, draws, and reloads, you know, physical mm-hmm. manipulations. I would say the if I could go back in time to when I first started seriously dry firing, when I started competing, I dry fired before that, but I mean, seriously, every day, putting in the work every day, right? If I can go back in time to that younger version of me to prevent wasted time, I would say focus on being honest with what your sights are doing from the very beginning. Don't cheat yourself trying to beat the timer and be sloppy on the movement in the sights and go, oh, it would have been okay. And it really wouldn't be okay. You know, that's, and I know it's harder for the beginning shooter. You need to push the speed. You need to push the speed to the point where you make mistakes. You've got to make mistakes or you're never going to get better. But cultivate that ability to really see what the sites are telling you in dry fire. Because that's what pays huge dividends from dry fire. If you don't cultivate that, then all you're doing is building the physical manipulation. You're not building your marksmanship in dry fire itself. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I would say is don't worry about gimmicks. There's a million things out there and I'm not saying they don't have value. They do. Um, I had a lot of value from, I know you're a big fan of the cert pistol. I had a lot of value from the cert pistol earlier on in my personal training. There's a lot of value to a lot of those things, but people, they want to find something that makes dry fire live fire. And that's not what dry fire is. Dry fire can be a phenomenal tool for developing your shooting but you're never going to make it live fire. The recoil control part still has to be learned on the range and the confirmation that you're seeing the sights correctly and pulling the trigger correctly still has to happen on the range. Nothing you buy in dry fire is going to change that. And a lot of those things early on, a lot of them can have value, but I think eventually everybody winds up just using the gun they shoot and miniature targets and being honest with what the sights do. And that's all you really need eventually. I'm not saying don't play around, you know, play around with the Mantis X, use a cert pistol. If you want the targets that fall down when the laser hits it, you know, play around with that. There's value to those things, but none of them are really essential. What's essential is learning to see your sights and pull the trigger and index the gun and do manipulations fast. I concur. I uh, wish I had understood that very thing as well in my earlier days of dry firing uh because like many others i thought well dry fire is 
challenging because like I'm supposed to be doing trigger presses, but I have to reset my gun and that's not realistic and stuff, but there's, there's so much more to it than that. Uh, even with a Glock, I know that like I use that as an example because it's a striker fired gun that once you press the trigger, that trigger stays back. Um, I can get very valuable dry fire practice with a Glock in my hands where I am even doing target transitions and I'm watching the sights land on each target as I'm essentially smashing the trigger because I'm trying, I'm I'm going fast and I'm looking to see what, you know, yes, if you're wondering, but the trigger's already back. I'm smashing back into that trigger, right? I'm simply making the movement with my finger and I'm watching what's happening as I do that through the sights. And that tells you so much about your grip, how effective it is, how, you know, and also how good your trigger press is, or if, if you're getting other things happening in your grip and in your wrist as you're smashing that trigger. I say smash because that that's when, when I'm going fast, that guys, that's what I'm doing. Oh yeah. You know, uh, guys will probably that are viewing or listening are like, what do you, what do you mean smash the trigger? Well, that's kind of what you got to do when you're going fast. Yeah. If, if you want splits like under two, it, it's no longer, there's no longer a precision trigger press going on. Right. No, it's just, <laughs> and I think, you know, I think you make an excellent point that kind of expands. I think rather than just saying, be honest with your sights, mm-hmm. because what you're doing right there is you're being honest with your trigger pull, even though the trigger is dead. And when I still shot Glocks, that's the exact same way I did it. I didn't put, you know, the business card in the breach or any of that. I just, the first trigger pull was a real trigger pull. And after that, I just tried to replicate the exact amount of force I would use on the trigger, on the dead trigger. And I think that's, that is perfectly fine. I don't think there's any issue with that whatsoever. You know, and now that I'm shooting the 2011s, I get movement in the trigger but the hammer's already fallen after the first trigger pull. So it's not exactly the same, but as long as I'm pulling the trigger the same way, that's all that matters. Yep. Yep. I, I do it the same way. A um, couple last things. I told you I was going to ask you this and thought we would ask, we'd, or we'd talk about it earlier, but, but here we are more towards the end. Uh, when did you first carry a gun concealed? Um, legally. <laughs> yes. So, uh, <laughs> When I first got off active duty in the Army, I was a cop in suburban New Orleans, actually. That's where I first started out my law enforcement career. I wasn't there that long. I was in the suburbs and then in the city. And then I went back into the Army for the pipeline for Special Forces. So that was my first experience with, with truly carrying concealed every day, all the time, right? And uh, I did basically everything wrong, pretty much. <laughs> I can't think of a single thing that was right. Um, I remember I had this Uncle Mike's holster that, you know, would close up when you pulled the gun out of it and had the big flat black metal clip on it. I think I, I must've spent at least two or three weeks trying to carry it in the small of my back before I realized that was like the least practical place to ever carry a gun. Um, I think it actually fell out a couple of times. That's why I quit. That's why (laughs) I decided that wasn't a good idea. Um, yeah, no, it was a mess. I, uh, I didn't really have proper instruction on it at the time. Not a bit. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you and I were sort of reminiscing before we even uh, went live today that, uh, I had a very similar experience. And yes, I have had a gun fall out of a holster, a very similar holster. And it was a scary moment. 
to say the least. Yeah. I mean, like, it's like, <clears throat> oh, snap. And that's when you realize for the first time ever, because uh, you, you don't know what you don't know, that hmm, not all holsters are created equal. And yes, retention is an important thing. Yes. And then <laughs> after that, for years, it was the, the leather pancake holster on the strong side hip, you know, underneath the shirt and underneath the jacket. And that was, that was the way we did it for forever, for a long time, before Kydex, before uh, Appendix came back into fashion, before all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what was one of the more difficult lessons for you to learn in concealed carry? Like how to actually carry a gun concealed successfully? I don't know if it was a difficult lesson, but I think it's probably the primary lesson I would recommend that other people sort out as soon as they can, right? I mean, obviously, you need a quality holster that is comfortable and will hold your weapon securely, right? And then you got to figure out where you're going to carry and how you're going to carry. And it's it's not as simple as just, I'm going to carry appendix. There's nuances to it based, you know, it's like we talked about grip, where everything's slightly different. You know, it, the placement of my holster is going to be different than Scott's. The placement of your holster is going to be different than Tim Heron's because our bodies are different. Our, mm-hmm. our physiology is different. So you've got to figure those things out. And the best way to do it is to take your gear to the range before you carry it and sort that stuff out, you know, and do some things that are athletic and see if the gun is retained, right? Do some things that involve movement and see if it's safe. Do them with a dry gun, you know, do some live fire exercises and, you know, practice clearing your cover garments and reholstering safely. Now that's a huge one. That's something you should do in dry fire a bunch as a new concealed carry guy is reholstering because where does everybody shoot themselves on the reholster? Mm-hmm. You know, it's when they put it back. And a lot of guys have done that in the real world too. They pull a gun for a real thing and then they wind up shooting themselves in the leg on the reholster. And if you train properly, that should never happen. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good stuff. You, you carry a gun uh, these days, I'm sure. Uh, I'm guessing you're carrying a staccato. I am. And, uh, you know, weather and cover garments permitting, I actually carry the full size. I carry the, the XC, which is a five-inch gun. Yeah. But I'm, I'm used to that. I carried a five-inch Glock for work appendix for a long time when I was off-duty. And I carried my work gun off-duty, too. Um, if I'm just running to the store or if it's really hot out, I'll carry the little, you know, compact single-stack one. But I, I tend not to just because comfort should be part of your decision for how you carry. But I don't think comfort should necessarily dictate the gun you carry. You know, it should you should address how you carry it for comfort. But I think you need to carry enough gun to prevail in the fight. Mm-hmm. And for most things, that single stack is fine, but not for everything. And... I would quite honestly rather have, you know, the 20 round capacity and the increased shootability of the XC. Not that the little gun's not a great gun. It is, but all of the things being equal, the XC is going to be a better choice for a gunfight. So I try to carry that as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, Doing, carrying a full size gun isn't without, and and you're not saying this, but it isn't without its challenges. So, What are some of the things as it relates to how, where, and maybe the holster choice uh, that you use to carry? Uh, what, what are some things that you've figured out to make that work for you? So both for 
for three factors, really. I'm a big fan of the foam wedge on your AIWB holster. And it, it really helps you out three different ways. It helps concealability because it keeps it from angling out and printing as much. Mm-hmm. It helps with comfort because now the the holster isn't digging into your your hip the same way because you've got that foam wedge kind of cushioning it and pushing it out a bit. And also for safety reasons, that wedge prevents you from flagging your body on the reholster. So you're not going to flag yourself the same way. I'm not saying you have to flag yourself without the wedge, but it's much easier to avoid with the wedge. Yeah. For a long time, I didn't even know about the idea of adding a wedge to a holster. You know, guys will talk about cutting yoga blocks and and gluing them or Velcroing them to the holster or using like, like shoe inserts and and things like that. Um, There's also products that are pre-made, you know, with that purpose in mind. Uh, Even companies like Dark Star Gear and and others putting out uh, purpose-built gear uh, for that, per- for, you know, for that purpose, for that uh, uh, idea of a wedge on a holster, um, it's it is a very because it's 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 about it's it's about put you know every, like you said everybody's a little bit different right and it's about putting that it is added bulk right people are like well that's added bulk but it's about putting that bulk in the right place that makes it work. You know what I mean? Like, and it, you're not talking about adding bulk to the top of the holster where your belt and, and your waistline and everything is. You're talking about the lower part of the holster and maybe smoothing out or rounding out some of the edges, but also adding that extra thickness in the right places that causes the holster to ride the way you need it to, to point the way you need it to, to angle the way you need it to. And it takes, it takes some experimentation for sure. And, and you've got to figure out exactly, I mean, we talk about appendix, but if you look at this too, this is somewhere where people vary pretty significantly, right? Where the gun is actually placed. Some guys are more towards the center line. Some guys are further out towards the hip. And I think a lot of that just has to do with, like I said, your body, how your body is shaped and what's going to be comfortable for you and work efficiently for the draw stroke for you safely. And I think you got to play around with all that stuff. You can experiment with all of it and figure out what's best for you. And you can get guidance from guys who've experimented before you. But like so many other things, to truly have the knowledge yourself, you've got to do it yourself. You've got to, you know, it has to be experienced personally. Otherwise, the knowledge is just academic and you don't know how to apply it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Well, we've probably taken too much of your time, Matt. And I seriously appreciate all the wisdom you've shared with us and all of our listeners today. I've had a great time. I, every conversation we've had so far has been fantastic. So I was excited about the podcast because it was going to be like just another another burn barrel chat at the range between you and me like we had in, in Utah. So Yeah, man. Well, I look forward to hopefully additional future conversations, maybe even back on the podcast again at some point. I'd like that. I'd like that both, both on and off the podcast. I'd like that. So sure. yeah, let's make it happen for sure. Very good. Very good. It looks like, uh, I'll be working to host you for a training course in Colorado sometime next year. Uh, details still to be determined. I still actually got a re- reply to, uh, your lovely wife, uh, on the email she sent me about that. But, uh, folks just know you'll, ha- there'll be an opportunity at some point next year. If you'd like to come and, uh, participate in a class uh, together with me and Matt. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to that a lot too. It'd be good to get on a range together again. So we need to roll another match together too. We got to yes. shoot. We got to shoot against each other again. Absolutely, I agree with that. Well, I hate to end it, but it is the way it is. You know, you got to get on to doing important things in your world, and I got to get on to doing important things in my world. <laughs> I think tonight well, is bath night here at the uh, Bowman household for the for the kids. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, and uh, I had a great time. And hopefully, your listeners enjoyed it too. So, absolutely, yeah. Thank you, Matt. Guys, one more time. You want to go check out, uh, look up Graybeard Actual on Instagram and Facebook. I know he's got various social media accounts. Also, graybeardactual.com. And then again, Matt does great work with Staccato STI Firearms, uh, staccato2011.com. Amazing guns. Eh, kind of expensive, but amazing guns. So if, if you're into that kind of thing, uh, go check them out. I think you'll like what you see. I see more and more of them on the firing lines all the time, including those XCs. And, oh, man, it's sorely tempting. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really cool gun. So, guys, we'll let you go. Matt, thank you so much, sir. We wish you all the best in your endeavors and all the important work you're doing. I mean, you're, you're working with so many different SWAT teams and other various agencies. And what I appreciate about that is that those, those, those are the guys that, uh, besides us being our own first responders, those are, those are also the guys we depend upon to do really important work and keep us safe. So thank you for, for all the work you do, Matt. Thank you. And thanks again for having me on. Like I said, I had a great time. All right. So with that, we're going to let you all go. A reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. <laughs>